Radio. Church in the Modern World. A talk by Father Joel Wallace at the 15th Annual Call to Holiness Conference. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to return to my hometown uh, to speak to you about Gaudium et Spes uh, as the longest, uh, most dense and most difficult document of the Second Vatican Council. And I have put some thoughts together. I hope uh, that I can present it to you um, in a way that's able to, that you can take something away today. And if there's something that I would like you to take away, it's probably the, the centrality and the importance of Christ for understanding what it is to be human and therefore what the church has to offer to the world. So the subtitle of my talk this morning is The Church as the Heart of the World. So as, the, as notably, the longest and most dense document of the Second Vatican Council, the Latin manuscript runs to a full 85 pages, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, or guardian et spes, those words are taken from the, the first words in Latin of the document, how can we today approach its teaching and understand it? So in this conference, it is argued that the surest interpretation of the text will be arrived at by placing it in its full historical context, that is, in the context of its development and understanding, and especially by reading it in the light of the post-conciliar papal magisterium. In other words, what have the popes said about Gaudium et Spurs, thinking particularly of popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI, to help us understand how we should be reading this teaching of the Second Vatican Council. Indeed, as we shall see, such an approach will offer a concrete and clear interpretation which will be free from cloudy interpretations, including a mere appeal to a spirit of the Second Vatican Council without content or reference to the text which has plagued popular discussions and often disguised agendas in the years after the Council, and the reduction of a, what Cardinal Ratzinger, then Benedict XVI, called a reduction of the Christian theology of hope to a naive progressive optimism, which resembles more a secular than a Christian humanism. And in this sense, the right interpretation, which we are looking for, will enable us to grasp the conciliar theme of updating the word, famous word of the Council, which was part of Pope John XXIII's speech at the beginning of the Council, aggiornamento, means updating. And we need to understand how, in the light of the Pope's teachings after the Council, we need to, we can understand um, the intention of Pope John the Twenty-Third, in and through, in this particular context, Gaudium et Spes, concerning the Church in the modern world, or the Church in the world of our time. We will be able to, therefore, give this concept of a giornamento, or updating, a Christological meaning, 
in the sense of the patristic doctrine of our having been created in the image and likeness of God. And we will try to avoid understanding this concept of updating in terms of a mere accommodation or adaptation of elements of the church to worldly forms. So I'd like to first ask the question, what is the relationship of the church to culture? Because in a sense, we have to put the central questions of guarding and spares on several levels. We can't oversimplify. But one of the key questions within Gaudium and Spes is this, what is the relationship of the church to culture? What is the intention of the teaching? And where is the Holy Spirit guiding the church in understanding this relationship? The pastoral constitution of Gaudium and Spes offers, offers its intention in the opening paragraphs. The Second Vatican Council, having probed more profoundly into the mystery of the church, now addresses itself without hesitation, not only to the sons of the church and to all who invoke the name of Christ, but to the whole of humanity. For the council yearns to explain to everyone how it conceives of the presence and activity of the church in the world of today. This is the intention at the heart of guardian space. How can we understand the presence and activity of the church in the world of today? And if we want to put it in really contemporary terms, the new evangelization. How is the church called to be in the world to present Christ afresh to the world of our time? Therefore, the council focuses, continue to quote from the second paragraph of Guardian and Spurs, focuses its attention on the world of men, the whole human family, along with the sum of those realities in the midst of which it lives that world which is a theatre of man's history, and the air of his energies, his tragedies, his triumphs, that world which the Christian sees as created and sustained by its maker's love, fallen indeed into the bondage of sin, and yet freed now by Christ. We can see that the Second Vatican Council was an ecclesiological council in the sense that it was primarily about the church. And not just about the church, but about how the church needs and can understand herself and her role in, its very, in her various dimensions and the various aspects of her life and in her presentation of herself to the world of our time. In this ecclesiological context, we find the liturgical and ecumenical questions inserted organically, and they shouldn't be separated from or isolated from the question of the church. Otherwise we end up with reductive tendencies which focus almost exclusively on liturgical form and on questions of ecumenism divorced from a proper understanding of the church. According to Cardinal Wojtyła, as you know, who became Pope John Paul II, when he was Archbishop of his Diocese of Krakow, he presented um, a series of talks uh, concerning the implementation of the Second Vatican Council in the years following the Council, which has been, uh, which have been published in a work called The Sources of Renewal. 
The council, he says, was motivated to develop a magisterial expression of the church's awareness or consciousness of herself in new historical circumstances, in changed historical circumstances. Whilst Lumen Gentium, the document on the church proper, is the principal ecclesiologically constitution inasmuch as it is concerned with the church's self-awareness of herself as church, the bride of Christ and the mystical body of Christ, then its relationship to the other constitutions comes into clearer focus. The document on the liturgy, Sacra Sanctum Concilium, is concerned with the church of prayer, with the dignity and beauty of her worship of Almighty God. Dei Verbum is concerned with her reception of divine revelation, and therefore with her transmission, discernment, defense, and preaching of the Word of God. Her unity is the subject of the document on ecumenism, Unitatis Reding de Gratio. Her Eastern element in the decree on the Eastern Catholic Churches, her internal vocational organization within the decrees of the bishops, the ministry and life of priests, on the consecrated life, and the lay vocation in the world. Her mission to proclaim the gospel of salvation with the decree Argentes on the church's mission, the church's missionary activity, and her use of the means of social communication in the document Intermurifica. And finally, the declarations Gravissimum Educationis on Catholic Education, Nostra Aetete and Dignitatis Humanae, we find in these an awareness of her responsibility not only for education, but her relationship to the non-Christian religions and concern for religious freedom. But notable, among the documents is the second chief dogmatic constitution on the Church, guarding its spares, the Church in the world of our time. If Lumen Gentium was concerned chiefly with the Church as she is in herself, then the central question of guardian and spares concerns the relationship of the Church to culture or to the world. The Constitution is notable, as we have said, for its length, but also for its strong relationship to Blessed John XXIII's opening speech. <clears throat> it was the first to be begun and the last to be completed, or one of the last to be completed, which is an indication of the complexities and difficulties involved in its drafting. It is proven to have great interpretative significance for a general reading of the Council and the unity of its intentions. Let us pause here for a moment and, and ask the question concerning the historical justification for such concern of the Church's self-awareness, also in relation to the world. Why should the Church be self-aware? Why would we be interested with the Church's consciousness of itself? In the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, there are some questions concerning the Church, the objective reality of the Church, but there are few. There's not a treatment on the church as such. Because at that time, the church was almost self-evident. It was 
such a self-evident reality for Christianity in the Middle Ages that the question never arose about how the church understood herself or should understand herself in the world in which uh, she found herself or in the culture in which she was situated. But times have changed greatly. And in new times, where we have a separation of faith from life, a separation, a much clearer separation of church and state, and church and culture, the importance of the church's self-understanding within that culture cannot be taken for granted. Let's have an overview of Gardiner's Space. Following the opening preface, the document begins with an analysis of the situation of the human person in the contemporary world. The situation is complex. Humanity finds itself in a modern crisis. Don't forget the memory of the First and Second World Wars and the great isms, communism, fascism, Bolshevism, Nazism, and then secularism and other isms besides. In this complexity of factors, the need to rediscover an authentic Christian humanism arose clearly. The solution with which Christianity and the Church offers to this crisis is a renewed understanding of the authentic transformation of the heart offered by Christ and the gift of His Holy Spirit. Part one of the document proper concerns itself with the unique vocation of the human person, the Church's teaching concerning which is sketched in a corresponding section, section one of the third part of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter one deals with the topic of human dignity, basing itself on the biblical and patristic doctrine of the image of God and the call to interpersonal communion, situated within the drama of sin and the promise of redemption. The challenge of modern atheism is presented in this part of the document, or at least it's mentioned. Indeed, the forms of modern atheism particularly anticipate the liberation of man, especially through his economic and social emancipation. I'm not going to go through the whole document of Garden and Space because that would take all day. We have less than half an hour remaining, no doubt. In the struggle of the, over the drafting of Gaudium et Spes, a major problem concerning the relationship of the Christian and the Church to the technological world arose. How should the Christian face the world of technology? This question involved a deeper question concerning human hope. What do we hope for? What are the many things that we hope for concerning the progress and improvement of the conditions of human life in this world? And how is that hope related to our hope of eternal life? How is our hope of the progress of the earthly city related to our theological hope for a city which is heavenly? In the first schema, or the first drafting of Guardian and Spezza, it was decided 
by the council fathers. In fact, the schema was more or less rejected because it was decided that it didn't distance itself enough from the language of Taiha de Chardin, or at least from the popular understanding of such language. It tended too much to associate technological progress with the progress of Christian hope. In other words, it tended to identify our hope for eternal life or reduce our hope in eternal life to hope for in technological progress. At least the language was not clear enough to avoid such a tension. It was obvious, Ratzinger said later, what a horrible perversion of Christianity this would present, this would represent. Statements about Christian expectations of the world to come were mixed up with technological hopes. In a paragraph which will be increasingly recognized as a way of interpretation for unlocking the core of the Council's teaching on Gaudi, in Gaudium and Spes, we find the following. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father in his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. This is a quotation from chapter, from paragraph 22 of Darling and Spes. I'm going to mention this again because in 1985 at the Extraordinary Synod of Bishops, 20 years after the Second Vatican Council, faced with a great crisis of interpretation and implementation of the Second Vatican Council, much of which started from a reading, or various readings, of Guardian and Spurs. Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger both uh, taught at this synod that we need to look at Guardian and Spurs through paragraph 22. It has to be like the lens through which we understand what the Church is trying to teach, what the Church is teaching. Gallimet Spurs is a difficult document to read. It's a difficult document to teach. We need some way of unifying the um, the idea that is the ideas that are presented in the in this pastoral constitution. Gallimet Spurs focuses our attention on Christ, Christ the New Adam, in the in fully revealing the Father and His love also fully reveals us to ourselves. He reveals to us the meaning and destiny of our lives. In other words, the only way to understand humanity fully is in and through Christ. The only way that the church can fully contribute to the world is to preach Christ. The only way that the church can leaven culture is to place the presence of Christ in the center of that culture and indeed to present Christ afresh to the world of our time. Closely related to this paragraph is John Paul II's carefully chosen expression in his first encyclical, Redemptor Ominis, on Christ the Redeemer of Man. How interesting is it that John Paul II's first encyclical was on Christ? And concerning precisely how Christ reveals man to himself, he said, 
Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself, to himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. With these words, Pope John Paul II shows something that is at the core of the Catholic tradition, the core of the Gospel, namely the law of love, by which God, who loved us first, offers us the gift of the Holy Spirit in order that we too might learn to love, and in loving, move toward God and toward our eternal home, toward eternal happiness. We must experience the love of Christ, make it our own, and participate intimately in it through our own actions. This is the goal of the Church and the world of our time, to present Christ afresh so that we might participate in His life. He tentatively calls this the new dimension of the mystery of redemption, thanks to which man, the human person, is newly created. In this passage, which emphasizes the priority of human, the human experience of divine love over the normative dimension of his acting. In other words, what's important to Pope John Paul II from the outset of his pontificate and his understanding of the role of the Church in the world of our time is to experience in Christ the love of the Father. And when we experience in Christ the love of the Father, we open ourselves to a gift, our freedom is awakened, and we experience a call, a call to love, a call to follow, a call to give the gift of ourselves. In other words, to participate intimately in love by means of the theological virtue of charity, the mother and form of all the virtues. As has been well documented, the initial reception of Guardian and Spes was, though enthusiastic, entirely inadequate. An important turning point can be designated by the event of the 1985 International Synod of Bishops, as I just mentioned. So once we see Christ at the centre, the importance of Christ at the centre of the teaching of this document, Gaudium et Spes, we can then begin to understand some of the other elements in the document which have been pointed out, and I quote here, or at least I take my ideas here from Ratzinger in his 1966 work, The Highlights of the Second of Vatican II, Theological Highlights of Vatican II. Ratzinger here points to the later part of the document where there are some elements of significant newness. There are some elements where the doctrine is undergoes a certain development. And I just want to say here that one important aspect of Gaudium et Spes is that it's not, although its expressions have been criticized even by theologians like Ratzinger because of its ambiguities. There's some ambiguities in the text. In a sense, of course, this is the magisterial teaching of the Church guided by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit guides the Church in a living manner. To understand Gaudium et Spes, we have to listen to the papal magisterium after the Council as well. Not just take some paragraph from Gaudium et Spes and decide what we think it means. We have to continue to listen to the Church to understand 
fully its significance. But because some of the texts, some of the paragraphs involve expressions which are ambiguous in the sense that they don't fully yet know how to express the truth which the document nevertheless initiates. <clears throat> the document initiates a path to overcoming an historical problem, an historical problem known as extrinsicism. Extrinsicism can be understood on certain levels. A, a, a separation, rather than an integration, a separated understanding of the realms of nature and grace, a separated understanding of the relationship between faith and reason, and therefore faith and life, and a separated understanding of the relationship between the church and the world, or the church and culture. And although Gaudium et Spes initiates a process of renewal and development, its expressions, because the theology underpinning at the time was still immature, some of the expressions have been able to be criticized in the sense that they lay themselves open, a little bit open to misinterpretation. Having said that, we must again listen to Karol Wojtyla as Archbishop of Krakow, who shows a way of understanding those, those passages in the light of other passages of the document, so that we don't fall into misunderstandings. For example, just take one example of the development of doctrine that occurs in Guardian Space. Concern, this concerns the theology of marriage and family. In the, in the relevant section of the pastoral constitution, marriage is defined not, no longer in terms of its ends, taken from a largely naturalistic and stoic approach to marriage and to ethics in general, but rather in terms of its intrinsic meanings, grasped from a personalistic perspective. Ratzinger points out in Theological Highlights of Vatican II that up until this time, and there was a shift begun by Pius XI in Casti Canubi, that the tendency to define marriage in terms of its ends from a, um, came from the inability or the inadequacy in earlier church history to develop uh, a full theology of marriage Rather, what had been drawn upon was certain elements already present in the, in, the, in the culture, like the stoic elements and the naturalistic elements. So marriage was defined more or less according to its biological function. And therefore, at the end of marriage, that the marriage, marriage of value was defined and had been defined for centuries, more or less in terms of um, its biological end, which is procreation. Now, without taking away from the truth of that, Gaudium et Spes effects something of a transformation in that it starts to look at marriage from the perspective of the person, of the spouses, and is able to integrate that with a, a more biblical approach and to see that the marriage is a communion of persons in which the spouses assist each other to eternal life. And of course that includes within it the other meanings, the procreative and the unitive meanings of marriage. So there is a beginning of a 
there, there we have the first steps in a development of doctrine here concerning the theology of marriage. The development inserted conjugal morality squarely in its proper theological context and presaged the movement already begun to recover a first-person approach to morality in general. In other words, instead of looking at conjugal morality and morality in general from the perspective of a judge, of a, from a third-person perspective, which had become increasingly common during the, during the era of the, manual, the, the moral manuals, more or less from the Council, the time of the Council of Trent until the time of the Second Vatican Council, not because of the councils, but in that period of time, there was a tendency to look at conjugal and all morality from outside of the perspective of the acting person. Gaudium space initiates a transformation which comes to maturity in paragraph 78 of Veritatis Splendor of Pope John Paul II concerning the renewal of fundamental moral theology in which he says, importantly, he, mentioned, he speaks personally, uh, importantly, of the object of the, of the human act which can only be adequately understood from the perspective of the acting person. Furthermore, the lines are provided already in Gaudium and Spes for a redimensioning of a theology of marriage and family within the context of a Trinitarian anthropology and what has been aptly called, aptly called a nuptial mysticism, which will be greatly amplified in the pontificate of John Paul II and beyond. In other words, we can begin to understand marriage and family in the light of the Blessed Trinity. The marriage, marriage and family is now called an icon of the Blessed Trinity. It's a reflection of God. That's why marriage and family is so important and it's such a crucial question in our time. So it's a timely topic, a timely development, and there is no other way for us to proclaim the truth of the church, our vision of marriage and family, except in the light of God. Jesus, in particular, who reveals to us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of life and love, which is open to fruitfulness. Also on the topic of war, Gaudium et Spes initiates a shift from the earlier and still traditional teaching concerning just war and the conditions under which one may wage war. <coughs> Given the experience of modern warfare and in its horrific consequences, regardless of whether or not it was just to wage the war in the first place, the final reduction of Gaudium et Spes opted to emphasize the moral responsibility of avoiding all war and the importance of dialogue and communication which might foster such complete avoidance. So whereas the traditional doctrine which goes back to St. Augustine emphasizes the conditions under which one may wage war, always within a situation of self-defense and protection of rights and dignity. Gaudium et Spes emphasizes the morality, the moral responsibility of avoiding war altogether because war inevitably has collateral consequences which affect drastically now, due to modern weaponry, the uh, situation of the world. So on three points, Cardinal Ratzinger 
in the theological highlights of Vatican II shows a develop, the initiation at least of a development of doctrine which would continue in post-conciliar years. Namely, the relationship of the Christian to the technological world, the teaching on marriage and family, and the teaching on war and peace. Historically, Gaudium Espes has been said to, that it can be seen as something of an antidote to the impact of the 19th century syllabus of errors of Pope Pius IX, writing in reaction to the rapid and disturbing rise of rationalist thought in the universities and the new programmatic atheisms of the time. The historical effect of the syllabus has been described somewhat symbolically as a construction of bastions around the church. The church, as it were, if the church can be seen as a castle in the world, which is, a, is, is no longer, a, uh, is not the imagery of the Second Vatican Council, which draws on biblical imagery, but if the church is seen as a castle in the modern world, in the world or the culture in which it lives, then the, the effects of the syllabus of errors of the 19th century, it has been said, by Ratzinger, by the way, and by Hanzos von Balthasar, to raise up bastions around the church to protect the church from the errors of the world. But the effect of the bastions was increasingly, not only that the errors didn't come into the church, but even worse, but more to the point that the church was less able to actually proclaim the word of God to the world, which is essential to its, to its mission given by Christ. So Pope Francis has recently said that if the church is not missionary, it's not the church. He says, I think he said, if we are not missionary, we are not the church. The church is missionary by its very essence. The risk of a ghetto mentality in the church was real and demonstrated itself sometimes in the ridiculous way in which Roman scholasticism influenced the curia to deal with certain aspects of the modernist crisis in the early 20th century. By the late 1950s, the need for renewal was clear in the face of the rapid changes affecting society, and the teachings of Pope Pius XII on the Church in Mystici Corporis and on the Sacred Liturgy in Mediator Dei provided the doctrinal foundations for the later teachings of the Second Vatican Council. So, in summary, given our, um, <clears throat> given the time this morning, let us say that at the centre of the teaching of Gaudium et Spes, we find in paragraph 22, as we have been learned to look at this taught now by two popes, and including Pope Francis, to, to look at this document in a new light, that we have a new a way of understanding the church and the world of our time in terms of the church as the heart of the world. I think that is the centre of my message this morning. I'm borrowing this expression from David Schindler, an American theologian and professor at the Washington John Porter Institute. And that if we, if we can think of the church as the heart of the world, it enables us to, to integrate this teaching on the church in the modern world with so much of our faith at the basic level, that if Christ is at the centre of our lives and he offers the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might transform this world by love, then the church can be seen as the heart of the world. 
It also enables us to integrate the mysticism of Saint Therese of Lisieux, who discovers her vocation as the heart of the world, a heart beating with love. And so if we place the importance of Christ at the center of the question of the church and look at the, the new evangelization as a new proclamation of Christ in the world of our time by learning to be love at the heart of the world, then we can begin to understand the profoundness, the depth, the beauty, and have a right interpretation of the teaching of Gaudium et Spes concerning the church in the world of our time. That was Father Joel Wallace on Church in the Modern World. This talk was from the Call to Holiness Conference on the Second Vatican Council. For more information, visit calltoholiness.com.au And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au